0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Today's program is a bit unusual in that we expect to have five different guests uh, throughout the coming hour, all of whom we feel will be welcome additions to the program. In our second segment today, we expect to speak with two UCD professors, both Dr. Jorge Dubkowski, who will talk, talk to us a bit about the fine art of growing wheat and feeding the world's population, as well as an alumnus of UC Davis, Dr. Caitlin O'Connell, currently researching elephants for Stanford University. Well, at least she's a research associate currently at Stanford and the author of a recent book titled The Elephant's Secret Sense. We also hope in segment two to speak to one of our fellow public affairs hosts, Steve Lambert, who was, as of, I guess, yesterday, the subject of an article in the New York Times. And to that we say, way to go, Steve. I look forward to speaking to him in segment two. But let us start the program as we like to do with on this date in history, which in today's case is May 17th. On May 17, 1876, Nicholas Otto files a British patent for the first four-stroke internal combustion engine. It was not the first internal combustion engine, but it was a vast improvement on the Luxembourg-born French engineer Etienne Lenoir's engine of 1859. In a technological breakthrough one year later, May 17, 1877, the first interstate telephone call was made from New Brunswick, New Jersey, to New York City, and was, in fact, answered by Alexander Graham Bell himself. Radio Parallax is unable to confirm the rumor that on the second interstate call, Graham Bell was asked if he wanted to change his long-distance carrier. And curiously, on that same day, the first telephone switchboard burglar alarm was installed by Edward Holmes of Boston, Massachusetts. May 17, 1885, the fearless Apache Indian chief Geronimo, the last Native American to surrender to the U.S., broke out of an Arizona reservation for the second time. For 30 years, he and his followers had resisted attempts by white Americans to take away their homelands. And finally, on May 17, in 1954, in a major civil rights victory, the U.S. Supreme Court hands down the unanimous decision in Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka ruling that racial segregation in public educational facilities is unconstitutional. And we will have more to say about that famous Supreme Court decision later on in this segment. Our quote of the day comes from the immortal Oscar Wilde, who said, A thing is not necessarily true because a man dies for it. Our quip of the day comes from the equally immortal Henny Youngman, who once said, I just got back from a pleasure trip. Yeah. Yeah drove my mother-in-law to the airport. We have two statistics of the day. The first comes from the International Herald-Tribune, which notes that an estimated 350 million people in Asia now speak English, which is about the same number as the English-speaking populations of the U.S., Great Britain, and Canada combined. Conversely, the United Press International... Reported that the U.S. Census Bureau now says that nearly 11 million U.S. residents are not fluent in English. This is up from 6.6 million in 1990. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Wall Street Journal, as reported in The Week magazine, last week was a good week for global warming and exercise, when it was noted that in Amsterdam, 40% of commuters get to work by bicycle. A garage planned for the city's central railroad station will hold 10,000 bikes. And I think before the month is out, we need our bicycling correspondent to come back and talk about uh, about uh, May 2007, which I, is uh, Bicycling Awareness Month. Actually, I'm not sure what it is, and I should have looked it up. But anyway, I'm sure that uh, Paul, if you're out there listening, come on and uh, educate me and everyone else about uh, what's going on this month. All right, according to the week, last week was a bad week, and it surely was a bad week for novels after Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney, a Mormon, retracted an earlier claim that Battlefield Earth by Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard is his favorite book. Romney now says Battlefield Earth is merely his favorite novel. The Bible is his favorite book. And this correspondent would like to add, if you've ever tried to read Battlefield Earth, or even worse, seen the movie with John Travolta, this would give you cause to doubt Mitt Romney's qualifications to be president. Although sometime in the months to come, Radio Parallax is planning to have a Battlefield Earth pizza party <laughs> where we can fully appreciate what, uh, which I believe is the all-time Razzie Award winner for bad cinema. And finally, last week was an ugly week for parental supervision when USA Today revealed that one-third of the teens and preteens who use the internet regularly have posted their real names, phone numbers, or home addresses on MySpace or other social networking sites. Yikes. And from the Only in America file, we have uh, this item. Evidently, David Hasselhoff, the former actor and sometimes singer, last week blamed his ex-wife for leaking a video of him falling down drunk. The video, which shows the 54-year-old actor lying on the floor shirtless while attempting to eat a hamburger, was shot by Hasselhoff's 16-year-old daughter. Reportedly, his daughter wanted her father to see what alcohol was doing to him. Said the actor, I've seen the tape, and I have learned from it, and I am back on my game. Uh, this correspondent did not observe Mr. Hasselhoff in action, but Mr. McMillan, I understand that you you've got a look at this. Yes, I did. And, it, and how is it? It's pretty bad. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm sure you can check this out on YouTube or LiveLeak.com if you're so inclined. We're not sure we recommend it, but you might want to check it out. And we're not sure frankly, what to make of the report that Jane Fonda, noted for being a sexual icon in the mid-1960s, who of course morphed into a feminist and leftist anti-war activist and eventually became obsessed with fitness in the 1980s, well, uh, Jane Fonda has now become a born-again Christian. Said Fonda, age has something to do with it. I began to feel more and more drawn to faith. I could feel reverence humming in me. And frankly, try as we might, we can't think of a wisecrack to go along with that, so we'll have to go back to Henny Youngman, who once said, if Moses had known you, there would have been another commandment. We'd like to note at this point that uh, next week at the Mondavi Center, there will be a special event. It's titled An Evening with Morning Edition. It's a behind-the-scenes look at that program featuring host Renee Montaigne and executive producer Ellen MacDonald. Capital Public Radio's own Donna Abadoni, who serves as the local host for Morning Edition, will be conducting the interview. And we're pleased at this point to be able to say, Donna Abadoni, welcome back to Radio Parallax.
1: Thanks. I prefer to think of it as regional rather than local.
0: I stand corrected. I think we should think of it as regional as well.
1: And Renee is actually going to be coming from... The studio she works in, which is in the Los Angeles area. Oh. A lot of people think of NPR as coming out of Washington, D.C., and a great part of it does, but we also have a wonderful West Coast bureau that Renee works from. So it's a, a bi coastal show with Steve Inskeep in D.C., and Renee in Los Angeles, and me here.
0: And you in Sacramento, indeed. Yeah. How is this like having to interview somebody up on stage? Isn't that, is, I would imagine that's a bit nerve wracking.
1: Well, not for me, because basically I'm driving. It may be nerve-wracking for her. I think the person who is used to interviewing for a living, when put in the position of answering questions and not interviewing, may be the one who feels a little bit awkward. And she has to make a lot of appearances and visit a lot of stations and do a lot of this thing. So I'm sure she's very comfortable with it. But it will be different for her a normal work day for me and i like working with a live audience a lot of radio people aren't so thrilled about that but i'm one who really enjoys a live audience so i'm looking forward to it
0: yes i I did see you with terry gross a couple years back
1: yeah terry gross and a number of other people along the way it's a lot of fun yeah and it's great to get immediate feedback from people who i know listen to the show every morning
0: yes indeed Um, have you met renee before
1: Just in passing. I've never had an opportunity to talk with her for more than 30 seconds. Okay. Along with Renee Montaigne will be Ellen McDonnell, who is the executive producer of Morning Edition. And even though she's not a voice that we hear every morning, she's the person who really makes this show happen from both coasts, puts together the whole package, and makes it a show worth listening to. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was a... Hmm. some surveys, some uh, research that came out within the last year or so that Morning Edition is on top when it comes to the most popular morning national show.
0: Yes, I'd, I'd heard that. They actually are number one.
1: Yeah. So it's very exciting for me to be part of the show, and I'm sure very exciting for Renee, but we'll also have the opportunity to hear from Ellen McDonald, who is the producer who makes this very popular show happen.
0: And I imagine that'll be quite interesting mixes to talk about what she has to do to sort of um, coordinate, I guess, between the coasts.
1: I'm sure it's a three-ring circus. Hey, what do you want me to ask
0: them? Wow.
1: <laughs> public radio, you know, everybody's a part of public radio, so you can be a part by letting me know what you'd like me to ask.
0: Wow, what a rare opportunity. <laughs> um, 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 let's see. Uh, now,
1: okay, so now you know what it's like to be in the position of having to answer the questions when you're used to asking them.
0: Yes, I, well, I guess I'm demonstrating that right now, all too, all too uh, clearly.
1: <laughs> well, if you can't think of anything now, that's okay.
0: I'll send you an email later. Okay. All right, well, the local voice for Morning Edition on your local choice for NPR, Donna Abadoni. Donna, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. We'll see you at the Mandavi Center on the 23rd. Y-
0: you will indeed? It's at 7.30?
1: Yeah. Right. Pretty late for a bunch of morning people, but we'll do it just for our audience.
0: That's right. What time do you have to get up to do this show? You have to get up at some ungodly hour, do you not? I
1: get up at about 2.45. Whoa! Um, Renee, because she's doing a show that's also heard on the East Coast, of course we'll ask her about this on the 23rd, but I believe I've heard her say that she gets up about midnight hour time.
0: Yikes. That's a horrifying thought.
1: It's all in service.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. All right, Do- Donna, again, thanks so much, and break a leg on Wednesday.
1: Thanks, it'll be fun.
0: All righty. We mentioned at the top of the hour that this is the anniversary of the famous Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954, which changed uh, the face of American education and really was one of the major moves forward in what became our civil rights movement in the 1960s. Joining us now to talk about Brown v. Board of Education is William Batetta, Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services at the National Park Service's Brown v. Board of Education National Historic Site in Topeka, Kansas. William Batetta, welcome to Radio Parallax.
2: Well, thank you, Doug.
0: This, uh, this, of course, is the anniversary of, of Brown v. Board of Education. I imagine that a lot of people do converge on your historic site today.
3: Uh, well, yeah, people who are very familiar with the case, particularly here in Topeka, do come and, uh, and reminisce about the story. We still have quite a few of the, the, the children who were involved in the case, and they come around. And also the Brown Foundation uh, for Educational Excellence also puts on a, um, an anniversary event every year.
0: The historic site is the, is the actual school in which the, the case was fought over?
3: The historic site is actually one of four uh, black designated elementary schools in Topeka at the time the one that people are most aware of, because that's the one that's in the textbooks, and that's the Monroe Elementary School.
0: It's sort of surprising to think about it that, that a, the great civil rights matter was fought in Kansas, because you don't think of Kansas having a large black population, but I guess Topeka at that time, like the rest of America, had sort of a segregated school system, etc.
3: It's actually kind of interesting. I don't know if we'd have time to go into it, Doug, but Topeka was a kind of an odd duck. Uh, it did have segregated schools, but it had it at the elementary level. And when you combine this case with the other four cases that went to the Supreme Court for the bigger decision, it, Topeka played a big role, because at the time, the practice was separate but equal, and Topeka was one of uh, very few places that actually practiced that. Yeah. And so it really it put the test to the court. They could have easily said, well, in these other places, make everything equal. Put more money into it. However... Here in Topeka, it was already being done, so it, I believe, and I've heard other scholars say that it really forced the Supreme Court's hand to say, is separating of people just by the color of their skin constitutional?
0: Right. Of course, we should refer listeners back to our interview with Michael Trachman. It talked about, I guess, Plessy versus Ferguson, that back in the 1890s established this idea that, you know, it could be constitutional as long as separation didn't mean that things were unequal, and of course, Brown v. Board decided that, you know, separation is inherently unequal. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. And uh, Thurgood Marshall, I guess, was the the hero of the case, uh, appealing for the NAACP to the Supreme Court?
3: Correct. He's the best known. Of course, he ended up sitting on the Supreme Court. He and uh, his uh, mentor, they were the ones who actually started the whole strategy behind doing this. It It wasn't a shot in the dark thing. They had been strategizing this for about 20, 30 years and attacking segregated activities across the country. And you know, Thurgood Marshall was a patriot in all respects. Yeah, he strongly believed in the Constitution, and that's the way they took the strategy was making their arguments based on the Constitution. And their efforts just didn't benefit the African American community. It was a it was a decision. The decision the Supreme Court made benefited everybody because it reaffirmed our Constitution that all citizens are protected under it.
0: It sounds kind of like what you're saying that uh, that really Marshall and and the people behind it. We're looking around for a test case that they could use in Topeka. I guess fit the bill.
3: It helped. It, it wasn't so much that the test cases; was they were they were constantly in motion. Their strategy was, you know, they started. If you go back in the in the books, they started with uh, colleges and universities. They actually started with law schools, huh. because they knew that judges, having come from law schools, would relate best to that. Hmm. Uh, so then then they tiered it down from there and kept going down, you know, to the lower levels of education until they got down to public education which was the, the the last venue of education where segregation could take place because it was uh publicly sanctioned. Um uh, so yeah it was a very very strategic activity that uh um you know a lot of great minds got together and put it together and figured it and figured out
0: how to to work it best. Sure. uh, A lot of the students that are still around that I guess participate in your exhibits and things. uh, What kind of stories do they tell you about how their life changed?
3: You know, it's really interesting to talk to the students. They were there, and I think only one of them actually testified here locally. They don't remember a lot of it. Their parents were the ones who were so so much involved with it. Uh, They they, when they reflect back on it, they think that they they know that they were part of a very important uh, momentous event in US history.
0: It's sort of encouraging actually for them I guess it wasn't it wasn't the huge deal maybe it was for some kids in the south.
3: Correct. That's very true. That's the way things were. They really couldn't comprehend what was going on at the time is what they, they relayed to me.
0: Well and I guess in a way that's sort of encouraging that life went on and then that they went on to yeah. the rest of their lives without uh, without that stigma. Yes. William Battetti any, any, any uh, final words for people out in California?
3: Well, we'd like to invite everyone from across the country um, to come and visit Brown v. Board National Historic Site here in the center of the country. We're located very shortly off Interstate 70 here in Topeka. We're open seven days a week, um, nine to five, and we are very, very proud of the exhibit we have here and what, what the story we tell about Brown v. Board and how it helped the country. Uh, You know, Doug, I I would like to give a little credit to uh, California also, because they do have a connection to this. Okay. California used to have segregated schools. uh, Some people may not be aware of that. I was not. They used to segregate uh, Mexicans and blacks uh, from the white students, and it was legal. In 1947, there was a case down in Southern California, Mendez versus Westminster, that challenged that, and uh, Earl Warren who was the governor at the time, agreed and ended legal segregation in California public schools. Subsequently, Earl Warren uh, went on to become the chief justice of the Supreme Court that ruled on Brown v. Board ending legal segregation across the country.
0: I had not realized that. So Governor Warren, uh, later Supreme Court Justice Warren, certainly was, uh, was thinking along those lines from long before the case got before him. Yeah. Wow.
3: This story really does touch a lot of people.
0: We've been speaking with William Batetta. He's the Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services at the Brown versus Board of Education National Historic Site in Topeka, Kansas. William, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Doug. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We've got some signs to talk about in Segment 2, so please stay tuned for that.
4: There's a little song that we sing in our movement down in the South. I don't know if you've heard it, but it has become the theme song. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe. We shall overcome. No, I've joined hands so often with students and others behind jail bars singing it. We shall overcome. Sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we joined together to sing it, but we still decided to sing it. We shall overcome. No, before this victory is won, some will have to Get thrown in jail some more, but we shall overcome. Don't worry about us. Before the victory is won, some of us will lose jobs, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, even some will have to face physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent psychological death.
0: Next week at UC Davis, uh, the Graduate Group in Ecology and Office of Graduate Studies will present Ecological Insights, a presentation by UC Davis alumna Caitlin O'Connell, who's author of The Elephant's Secret Sense. This has gotten quite a bit of publicity in National Geographic, Scientific American, and The Economist, as well as NPR's All Things Considered. Joining us now to talk about her research with pachyderms is our own Dr. Caitlin O'Connell. Welcome, Dr. O'Connell.
5: Hi, thanks so much for having
0: me. Um, In reading about this, you've apparently, I guess, broken some ground on how elephants communicate, and it was suspected they were using some, uh, I guess, low-frequency sound waves, and you set out to prove it.
5: Yes, it had been discovered that elephants communicate with low-frequency sound, but what I set out to prove was that those sounds were actually coupling with the Earth, and traveling through the Earth, and elephants were picking up those surface ripples on the Earth. So it's different than airborne transmission in that elephants are feeling the vibrations through their feet.
0: So elephants, basically like, I guess, someone sitting on a subway, you can feel the vibrations of what's going on below. They're able to make something of that.
5: It's exactly like that, but they have a very sophisticated ability to discriminate between the different subways that are going by.
0: (laughs) All right. They're they're getting a lot of uh, input from nature, or is this elephant herds communicating across long distances?
5: Well, what we think is happening is that elephants can interpret their environment better, possibly detecting thunder earlier than they could if they heard it in the air. Um, but also their vocalizations are propagating in the ground, and they can discriminate um, subtle differences between vocalizations, even within the same call type. So we would play back vocalizations through the ground and then measure their responses Um, as they react to these surface ripples. And it turns out that they can detect even within... um, So we played different alarm calls from different countries, and they only responded to the alarm call, and they were all made in the context of lions hunting. So these alarm calls, the elephants would respond from the ones that came from Namibia, from the uh, park that we were playing calls back to the elephants. So they did not respond to the alarm calls made in Kenya. And we weren't expecting that level of sophistication. We thought they could detect an alarm call and, and just get out of there. But really, they were discriminating. Was this an alarm call something important from somebody that they knew?
0: So the elephants in Namibia are speaking in basically a Namibian d- uh, dialect of elephant language?
5: It's Through the ground, too. Yeah. Not only in the air, but also in the ground.
0: Dr. O'Connell, what, what distances do you find the elephants are able to communicate with each other across?
5: Um, well, physically, I- in the air, people have um, estimated about two to four kilometers uh, traveling in the air and and then an outer limit of about ten kilometers under ideal airborne conditions where it's really cold and the sound travels kind of in a two-dimensional cylinder. Now, in the ground, um there's a potential to travel further because there's uh, one, there's a the conservation of energy in the air when you uh, every doubling of distance that you step away from another person you lose half you lose six decibels and then in the ground you only lose three so this sound is traveling cylindrically versus spherically so it physically could travel further Um, but again seismologists are looking for uh, a a type of of, um, ground wave that they try and get rid of all of these surface ripples it's like when you have an earthquake and the um, parking lots and bridges are being broken up, it's really these high-amplitude surface waves. They want to get rid of that noise to try and measure how far an earthquake is. So the problem with that is that we don't have any good, real good uh, outer limit measurements for how far these waves can travel, and that's the subject of some of our current studies, is to really get a good handle on that to see if, if they really have a much ex- more extended um, distance of, of uh, communicating.
0: So I guess a, a lot of male elephants are out there trumpeting, looking looking for mates and things like that. Are the elephants able to know that that's, uh, that's what's being sent out as well through the ground?
5: Yes, but actually trumpets are higher frequency than what's called a rumble vocalization. So these vocalizations are all made in the range of 20 hertz, which is just below the human threshold of hearing. And those um, vocalizations, so a male that's interested in finding mates um, creates a must-rumble, which is a low-frequency repeated call... And that also propagates along the surface of the earth, and and it basically adds a new modality for communication for elephants, whether or not the signal can travel even further than the air. um, It's physically possible that it could, but it also just provides another dimension where they can, if you can imagine timing the uh, the distance away that a storm is, and you're counting between thunder and lightning. Elephants could do the same thing because the vocalization travels at a separate rate in the air versus the ground. So that would mean, theoretically, they could count the space between the airborne and the seismic signal to figure out how far away another elephant might be.
0: Which is basically what scientists do when they're measuring earthquakes.
5: Yes, exactly.
0: Wow.
5: So elephants have big seismometer feet.
0: (laughs) Uh, does the elephant make the sound in the voice box and it travels down through its body, or does it go from maybe his throat to the ground?
5: Well, that hasn't been figured out yet, but the, the elephant larynx is um, different than the human larynx. It's able to create lower frequency sounds, so it's missing a few bones. It only has five bones instead of eight. And these bones, um, the idea is that they can create this lower frequency signal so we assume that since the larynx is adapted for this that they probably are producing it in the larynx but whether or not they resonate um, the vocalization using their diaphragm or whether it goes directly into the ground through their feet we still haven't figured that out yet
0: and you spend a lot of time I gather in Africa how, how do you view the elephant populations are they doing okay
5: <laughs> well some places are doing extremely well such that there's very many of them and they're coming into Uh, they're having interactions with humans that are often negative because they're competing for land and resources including water so access to those resources are becoming a problem but then in other areas poaching is is a big problem and so it really depends on what the socio-political and economic status of of the humans in those countries some places they're doing really well and others they're they're uh, coming under threat
0: well, if someone wanted to go to Africa and maybe check out the elephant populations, where, where would you recommend they go?
5: The Okavango Delta in Botswana is a wonderful place to see elephants from a dugout canoe. Um, the desert elephants in Namibia, uh, our population that's in Natasha National Park, um, big populations in Zimbabwe. Kruger's a lovely place in South Africa. But then you also you have the Serengeti and Amboseli uh, up in um, Kenya, Tanzania. At this there's really fantastic places to see elephants. Zambia is another place, very pristine and wild still.
0: Well, I would like to add uh, what little I can that on a trip to Tanzania, I did see an elephant herd uh, somewhere near Ngoro Ngoro Crater, and it was one of the most spectacular things I think I've ever seen.
5: I I believe that that, yes. Uh, I have some of my most spectacular images include <laughs> elephants. So yes, that's that's another beautiful place to see them.
0: Well, Dr. O'Connell, you'll be speaking next uh, next Wednesday, public lecture at Mondavi. Um, that's at 7.30.
5: Yes. Elephant communication, um, also some new insights into elephant bull society that we're just learning about, um, the effect of hormones on behavior and how dominance hierarchies are set up. So all sorts of exciting things.
0: All right. Well, I, I, I hope to be there and, and hear more about this because it's a very interesting subject and I, and I appreciate your speaking uh, with us about it.
5: Well, thanks
0: so much. I appreciate being here. All righty. Dr. Caitlin O'Connell is a research associate at Stanford University. She's, of course, also a UC Davis alumnus and will be speaking next Wednesday at the Mondavi Center in a public lecture at 7.30 p.m. She'll also be speaking at a research lecture at 2.30 p.m. at UC Davis at 126 Wellman Hall. This is a free for students, faculty, and staff of UC Davis. On this program a few months back, we talked about some research being done here at UC Davis in improving wheat varieties. And, of course, on last week's program, we talked about the threat to the world's wheat crop from a new type of rust. So what better time now to talk to uh, UC Davis's, uh, I guess, primary wheat breeder, Professor Jorge Dubkowski? Welcome to the program, Dr. Dubkovsky. Thank you very, very much. What, what goes on in the wheat, the wheat research program here at Davis? Well,
6: in relation to the, your question, about rust there are different types of rust Uh, the the most uh, the the one that is producing the most damage in california is called uh, yellow rust or stripe rust and uh, we have had a terrible epidemic since the year 2000 until now we in 2003 to give you an example we lost 25 percent of the wheat crop in california it was declared a disaster zone basically the race that you're mentioning is a race from another type of rust that is called stem rust. This is that we defeated several decades ago by the introduction of uh, resistant genes. Um, even though in the past it produced severe epidemics, in the last 40, 50 years there have not been any problem because we have uh, put resistant genes in our varieties, so the pathogen has has never been successful again. But uh, Two years ago, well, in 1999, they discovered a new race in Uganda, in Africa. It's called That's what's called UG99 from Uganda 99, that is virulent on those genes that have been affected over all these years. That means if you put a variety with a, a California variety with that race, it will will have the disease again uh, here. So the, the pathogen is starting to move and has expanded and now has crossed to the Arabic Peninsula. And slowly, as it happened with the other races, will eventually reach us. So we need to, we are trying to be prepared and int- start introducing new resistant genes that are affected against that race.
0: Now, one would imagine this is a case where genetic diversity and being able to go out there and find some strains that might be resistant is especially important.
6: Exactly. We have, a, we have a, fortunately, we, we, we have been collecting wheat and wheat relatives for several years, and there's a... The small grain connection in, in Aberdeen is a, a beautiful resource of, uh, of uh, genetic diversity. A uh, collaboration has been established with CMIT, uh, USDA, and all the wheat breeding programs to make screenings directly in Kenya. So every year, we are, for the last years, we have been sending our materials and uh, so samples of that genetic diversity in the small grain collection to Kenya to identify uh, new sources. Of uh, resistance to this pathogen, unfortunately, so, some some of the varieties are are resistant, and uh, for some of them, we already know the genes that are responsible for that resistance, and we are using them in our breeding populations. And for others, we are doing the genetic studies to, to discover
0: which are the genes. And we should sort of just just by way of backtracking a bit. I don't think people are as familiar with agriculture as they used to be. This 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 is a kind of a, a fungus that shows up as black spots and wipes out the stem.
6: The stem is a brown, yeah, dark brown spot, and then it it produces a lot of damage in the stem, and then the 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 plants, the yields of the plants are greatly reduced. The stripe rust, on the contrary, is mostly on the leaves, and uh, it appears as uh, bright orange spots, and uh, that they are organized as stripes, so that's why the name of stripe rust.
0: And as a aside, how does this compare to like the uh, the ergot, the mold that used to uh, appear on, on, on different crops, and I guess uh, was where we got LSD?
6: Well, that, that is not a big problem in, uh, in, in in California at all because it requires more humid regions. So our main pathogens are the striped rust, and follow with another pathogen that's called Septoria tritici blotch. So those are the main pathogens uh, for wheat in, in California. There are others, of course. There are some viruses and the ones that have been producing the most damage in the last 5 years are those two.
0: Well, I understand too uh from this this press release many months ago you're doing a lot of research here in wheat regarding some uh how how the plant flowers and this may be important for changing climate in the future.
6: That's uh, one one trade that my my love has has done a, a good progress in, in in something more basic so this is not direct breeding. But what we are trying to do is to, to clone the genes that are responsible for the difference in flowering time of the of the wheat varieties, and to understand how flowering time is controlled. So then we can engineer better varieties with the uh, different requirements for for flowering. So we we have been successful. We cloned the, the main three genes that control flowering in wheat, and those were published in high-profile scientific journals. So we're pretty proud of that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's it's written that uh, that wheat is is the number one feeder of the world's population. Uh, what what might happen when this uh, this latest threat of, of this rust hits, say, India?
2: Yeah, exactly. That
6: that that is one of the biggest uh, concerns. There's a, a international consortium that uh, is the Wheat Rust Initiative that has been organized. They are trying to help uh, those countries to introduce resistant genes as soon as possible. Uh, there's a, a, an, an attempt to to generate proposals to the GATE foundations and other agencies. So uh, we, we, most of the countries are, are, that have wheat are working already in trying to develop and deploy solutions to this pathogen. Th- there are tools. To, today we have a, a technology that's called marker-assisted selection. This is not transgenic. It's normal crossing. But then you use molecular markers that are just pieces of DNA that you can use to identify as a, as, as a marker, Parts of the chromosome, so you do first a mapping experiment where you determine which of these markers is close to the resistant gene, and then you use th- that marker, that flag, to follow that piece of chromosome and move your genes into your variety. Of course, that requires technology, and not every country has access to that technology, but countries like India or China, or they have a very strong marker selection programs, and they are already using the, those tools to try to, to be
0: prepared. Well, that's kind of a high-tech solution. I want to ask about low-tech solutions. When I was a student at this university, we uh, we talked about how my understanding was in the Ethiopian highlands, there were more varieties of wheat grown there than probably in the rest of the world combined. Uh, do people go out there and try and gather this germplasm for future banking?
6: Yeah, we, we, I think that we have a good collections of, of wheat uh, worldwide. And of course, it, would, it, it won't be a bad idea to have uh, additional collections. There are... Uh, tens of thousands of accessions of uh, wheat collected all over the world in in the small grain collection. So we have enough to start looking for resistance. And as I said, uh, the the first screenings in Kenya have shown that we have sufficient sources of resistance. So the, the, the problem is now deploying that resistance in time.
0: All right. Uh, I guess Jared Diamond in his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, uh, talked a little bit about um, about how modern wheat uh, came from a certain mutation took place that allowed us to, to harvest wheat, uh, which I thought was very interesting. I guess wild wheat is not like the product that we grow.
6: No, it's completely different. We are... <laughs> just, I'm a- you got me in the middle of writing a review about the origin of wheat. So, oh. yeah. so yes, there, there's a mutation. There are actually two, two mutations. There, there were two events of domestication of wheat. The, the, the original wheats wheat they have a spike that completely disarticulates, so the grains will fall apart and fall into the, into the field. So, so you, the, you if couldn't
0: harvest them. You go to harvest no, exactly. them. Exactly.
6: So the first mutation was a mutation that uh, resulted in a non-shattering spike, so a spike that will remain altogether. Uh, so that was the first mutation that occurred around 10,000 years ago. And the first domestication the first was in, in some mountains in Turkey and then expanded from there to, to the rest of the world. Those weeds that, uh, that, um, that have that mutation, they still have a problem that you cannot free the grain from the, from the chaff very easily. So there was a second mutation that uh, created what is called the free-threshing weeds. Uh, and uh, that mutation, together with the previous one, resulted in, in the modern weeds that we cultivate today.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting stuff, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad that here at UC Davis, you guys are continuing to put the pasta, the noodles, and the bread uh, on, our, on all of our tables.
6: Yep, we, we, are re- we have already released a pasta variety recently, and now we are preparing our new bread varieties to, to come out. So, yep, we are trying to keep that going.
0: <laughs> well, Professor Jorge Dubkovsky, uh, thank you very much for speaking with us, and perhaps uh, as, as you need to make some developments, you can come back on and tell us what those are.
6: Okay, no problem at all.
0: All righty. Joining us now, in the program is one of our own. Uh, one of our own here at uh, KDVS. One of our fellow public affairs hosts, Steve Lambert. Steve, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you. Now, Steve, uh, can you remind the Parallax listeners a little bit about what you what you're doing every Friday at KDVS?
2: Well, I have a show that goes from 8.30 to 9.30 uh, that's a sort of collection of telephone conversations and it's sort of field recordings and interviews I do with people out in the world. And then I put it together into a sort of one theme. Um, Themes have been everything from uh, clothing and how you pick your clothing to whether or not God is real. And um, then that just gets cut together into a one-hour show. And I try to ask questions that, are, that have no way of really answering them. So the one I'm doing next, hopefully about, uh, in the next week or two, is about
4: are we really free?
0: Well, Steve, you've been a man after our, our own heart, taking on the big issues and, and using the freedom <laughs> that we're afforded here at KDVS to do whatever the hell we please. <laughs> but I'm sorry we haven't yeah. participated up till now, but uh, we'll see what we can do about that in the future. Because I know you send a lot of emails inviting others to to join in.
2: I set up a phone number um, so that anyone could call, and they could call anonymously um, and contribute to the show. And then um, anyone and everyone um, that wanted to contribute could sort of become part of the radio show. And, uh, you know, you called me the host earlier, but I actually don't talk (laughs) very much on the show. All right. Sometimes not at all. So it's really made up of you know other people.
0: All right, well we'll call we'll call you the producer then and prime mover. <laughs> well, Steve, you're also you're a conceptual artist and rather unusual for people living out here in uh, the greater Davis area. You've been written up in the New York Times. Tell us about that.
2: I had this uh, idea for a browser, a web browser plugin. So uh, you know, there's a lot of different software people used to look at the, at the World Wide Web, um, Internet Explorer, Firefox, or Safari, these are like the three big ones. And uh, within Firefox, you, it's an open source program, which means people can modify it and change it and contribute to it, and they can also contribute um, extensions or plugins, little bits of code or software that can change or improve the browser. So some of them, you know, will show you the weather in the bottom corner or have a way to control your music player and others, you know, um, there's one out there called Adblock Plus that blocks all the advertising, so if you go to, say, The New York Times or some um, site that has advertising, it just removes it. And um, those types of plugins or extensions are the most popular uh, of all. They're they're, they're by far, and um, they're downloaded by millions of people, so the idea that I had was, you know, instead of just replacing it with nothing, or white space to replace it with um, art, uh, art images, and sort of turn it into a, a museum or a gallery within your browser. And so I started working on the project, and, and um, I'm, at, I'm on a fellowship at this place, iBeam, which is an art and technology center in New York. And there's people around here that, if you say, "Hey, you know, can you? Is this possible? Is, is there a way that this can be done?" They most often the answer is yes, and uh, I have a weekend, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to see what I can do. So we made a sort of prototype, and I started to look for funding to, um, to get it further developed. So that got picked up, and then um, somehow the Times heard about it, and uh, there was a story earlier this week.
0: All right, well, we should refer people to the article by Andrew Adam Newman at the New York Times titled Web Fight, Blocking Ads and Adding Art. Where would people go if they want to know more about this? Uh, is there a place to go? Um,
2: well, that plug-in specifically uh, is, there's a website that's www.addart, A-D-D-A-R-T, dot iBeam, E-Y-E-B-E-A-M, dot org. And um, I also have a, my own work is up at visitsteve.com.
0: All right. Well, very good. Steve Lambert. Uh, Just, I guess, a final question. You had a a one-day performance in Davis welcoming commuters at the train station. How'd that go down?
2: It was pretty fun. Um, For about two hours, you know, we had a marching band and free popcorn and this guy who was posing as the king of the city welcoming people to Davis and saying goodbye to those that left. And we had a great time.
0: I imagine a lot of jaws were dropping as they were stepping off the train and finding this committee.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, we we had flowers for them and uh, keys to the city, which were just keys that my wife has collected over the last few years, painted gold. There was confusion
0: and delight. All right. Well, I hope I hope you will do more of the same, and we'll uh, we'll see what we can do to, to spread the word. All right. Well, Steve Lambert, uh, thanks for speaking with us. You'll be back uh, uh, tomorrow morning, I guess, at 8:30 a.m. on uh, here at KDVS. Yes. Steve Lambert is the purveyor of. The Steve Lambert Show, part of our public affairs program lineup here at KDVS. The Steve Lambert Show airs every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and can be heard on our website, kdvs.org. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Yeah, we like to do obituaries in our third segment, uh, not infrequently, because we think the passing of certain individuals are, you know, worthy of note. On last week's program, we mentioned uh, the death of the legendary astronaut Wally Shirah, but uh, encountered a couple little uh, anecdotes about Shira in the meantime that we thought we needed to share. Said USA Today, known as Jolly Wally, Shirah was an inveterate practical joker. Tired of constant requests for urine samples during training, he once obliged with a five-gallon jug of water, iodine, and detergent. He once smuggled a corned beef sandwich aboard his Gemini capsule and later quipped that he had catered the flight. Wally Shiraz's most famous prank occurred on Gemini 6, 10 days before Christmas in 1965. He and co-pilot Tom Stafford unnerved mission control by alerting it to an incoming UFO. Shira described a command module and eight smaller modules in front. The pilot of the command module, added Shirah, is wearing a red suit. After several tense moments he and Stafford shook a set of sleigh bells and commenced playing jingle bells on the harmonica. <laughs> And we're very sorry to note that after uh, we saw Bob Newhart uh, last year, we talked about how we really wanted to have Tom Poston on the show. Regrettably, that will never take place because the TV legend also passed away a couple of weeks ago. Tom Poston was possibly best known to audiences uh, for his appearance on The Newhart Show, and, and previous to that, uh, his appearances on Mork and Mindy. This correspondent, however, recalls Tom Poston as a uh, a regular figure on television game shows back in the 1960s. And regrettably, Tom Poston now joins uh, Kitty Carlisle in that uh, great game show, In the Sky, another guest we would have dearly loved to have brought to, to you, dear listener. And I'm really sad to report uh, this particular obituary because uh, Gail Murphy, our Hollywood correspondent, assured me a couple of years ago that if we wanted to get Tom Poston, she could deliver him. I I didn't take Gail up on her offer, so the fault is mine. I know that you can still see some of Tom Poston's work along with his fellow uh, game show uh, panelists on, on TV's Game Show Network. Tom Poston won an Emmy back uh, in the late 1950s when he was part of the Steve Allen Show. Steve Allen, who was the first host of The Tonight Show, put together a comedy ensemble that included Tom Poston, Louie Nye, and Don Knotts. Louie Nye played the, the smarmy Madison Avenue type Gordon Hathaway, whose Hi-Ho Steve Arino apparently became a, a buzzword of early television. Don Knotts always played a jittery, bug-eyed, nervous individual who, when asked by Steve Allen if he was nervous, would always respond, No! Poston's uh, Man on the Street character was, uh, was so unnerved by the television cameras that he couldn't remember his name. He, and in fact, he won his Emmy for playing the man who can't remember his name. And according to TV legend, the bit came about because Poston was auditioning for the role of uh, one of Steve Allen's sidekicks. And when he was asked by the host to identify himself for the home audience, Poston put his hand to his temple and said, damned if my mind didn't go blank. Alan loved it, apparently thinking it was deliberate, and from then on said Poston, I was a regular. And our final item in today's obituary section, we failed to note the passing of the legendary Hawaiian singer Don Ho, who died April 14th of heart failure at the age of 76. Don Ho was truly a Honolulu legend for decades. Send one tourist, Hawaii was two things back in the 1950s, Pearl Harbor and Don Ho. They uh, held a memorial service for Mr. Ho on the beach at Waikiki last month, and thousands of people turned out for it. And I'm extremely pleased to note that in the late 1980s, I did take my mom and dad and grandma over to the Hawaiian Islands, and yes, we did take in the musical stylings of Mr. Don Ho at his nightclub in Honolulu. And yes, he did sing Tiny Bubbles. Yay! Which was his signature tune. And I'm not ashamed to say that, uh, you know, you can say what you want about Don Ho. I thought he was great. Tiny
6: bubbles and wine.
2: Make
0: me feel fine. I... All right, and also from the obituary column, perhaps from the political obituary column, comes the fact that uh, George Tennant, former head of the CIA, is now out on a public relations offensive to convince the public that he's not to blame for the debacle in Iraq. George Tennant now admits that the CIA provided flawed intelligence on Saddam's weapons of mass destruction— Duh. But he says Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, and other Bush administration neoconservatives were obsessed with toppling Saddam Hussein and used the WMD merely as a pretext for a war they had already decided to launch. Well, we were telling you that on this program in the fall of 2002, so this is not exactly news. Perhaps you saw Mr. Tennant on uh, John Stewart the other night uh, <laughs> dodging the question about the uh, slam-dunk issue. He tried to make a joke out of it by saying, well, he wasn't, no, he wasn't leaping in the air and he wasn't wearing tennis shoes. But uh, we think his efforts to uh, try and shirk responsibility for the war in Iraq uh, didn't quite work. So why is he speaking up now? Well, USA Today in an editorial speculated that uh, the loyal tenant kept telling his bosses what they wanted to hear, but now is angry at Vice President Dick Cheney. Cheney, you see, publicly quoted Tenet as having assured the White House that the intelligence on Saddam's WMDs was that famous slam dunk. Christopher Hitchens, writing in Slate.com, said, yeah, it's a bit late for Tenet, who is a legendary master of Washington kissup, to distance himself from the decision-making to invade Iraq. When Secretary of State Colin Powell made his ill-starred presentation about Iraqi WMDs at the United Nations, Wasn't that the CIA chief sitting directly behind him, silently vouching for the information and beaming like an overfed cat? Well, the answer to that question is, yes, he was. Juan Cole, writing in Salon.com, noted that of all the questions Tennant raises in his book, one stands out above all. Why didn't he resign? At any juncture, he could have announced that the country was being driven to war on the basis of obvious falsehoods. In doing so, possibly could have saved us from this disaster. Instead, noted David Korn in TheNation.com, Tennant sat on the story, accepted the Medal of Freedom from President Bush, and collected a cool $4 million for this book. I noted that when he signed off with Jon Stewart, he had a smirk on his face. I'm sure thinking, well, there goes another $400,000 in book sales. We did a lot of science in today's program, but as uh, in the closing minutes here, I do want to note that you do need, dear listener, to go onto the web and check out this photograph of a ghostly ring of apparently dark matter surrounding a cluster of galaxies. Uh, it's just an amazing photograph. We will have more to say about it, but, uh, you know, it looks... They kept thinking this was an artifact in the distortion that you saw in the light, and now their scientists are convinced, at least some of them are, that this is actually dark matter bending light rays around and giving this very strange, eerie ring look to these distant galaxies. And with two minutes to go, we would like to invite all of you, dear listeners, to check out PublicRadioQuest.com. One word, PublicRadioQuest.com. Because on the web, the Public Radio Exchange is conducting a nationwide talent Contest. At stake is over $70,000 and a chance to create a new national program for public radio. We here at Radio Parallax are among the 1,400 contestants and hope that you will listen to our clip and give it a rating. We excerpted two minutes of our Walter Cronkite interview from a few years back, and I believe you can find it by noodling around and trying to look up Walter Cronkite interview among the contestants. This is apparently being conducted American Idol style, so yes, the public uh, input is what determines who goes on to round two, and the public would be you, dear listener. Please check this out at publicradioquest.com. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks for today's program go to Dr. Jorge Dubkowski, UC Davis wheat breeder, UCD alumnus, Dr. Caitlin O'Connell, author of The Elephant's Secret Sense, KDVS's own Steve Lambert, with special assistance from Drake Martinet, William Batetta of the Brown v. Board of Education National Historic Site, and Donna Abadoni from Capital Public Radio. We hope to see you next week at the Rene Montaigne event at the Mondavi. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Now, stay tuned for KDVS's musical programming to follow. And on our final note today, we didn't have time to comment on the passing of the Reverend Jerry Falwell. We'll just close today noting that he has moved on to another place.